Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked. Hello everyone, Um, I'm Karina Edwards and welcome to episode 22 of The Bible Unmasked. And Mass is a series where we go through and read the entire Bible. Um, this series is aired um, every Sunday night at 7.30 on YouTube, and you can also find it being aired on PlantationSDA.tv. And our goal through this series is to read the Bible in its entirety for the whole entire year, for the whole year of 2021. So you can find the reading plan um, that we read every week. It's shared during the Sabbath service, and you can also find it on our social media and online. Um, I invite you all, um, inviting you as the viewers, to continue to read with us. Um, Invite your family, your friends, whoever you know, um, to continue to read um, the scripture every Sunday night, excuse me. Um, You can also text your questions to 954-380-8780. Where the pastors and um, Principal Stevenson will be coming on every Sunday night and hosting um, SCA Church's YouTube channel so you can be notified of any changes, any events, and also um, any notifications about this series. So I am your co-host tonight, um, Karina Edwards, and also we have with us Pastor Kevin McCoy. Pastor McCoy? Pleasure to be with you this evening again, Karina. Um, we're missing Olivia, um, but I know she yes. she's okay, and um, we're praying for her. Um, but we're still going to have a good time, good time together. So at this time, wherever you are, we're going to invite the Lord's presence as we go into our study. So I'm going to pray. So please bow your heads with us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together um, on this Sunday night to learn more about your word and what you have to say to us through your word. I ask that you give us that you give us the spirit of discernment as um, we read throughout the weeks and as we come together online virtually to talk about it. I hope that everyone learns something and we can grow virtuous experience. This is my name, my prayer. Amen. 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 So last week, um, we discussed, I believe it was Second Chronicles 32 to Nehemiah 7. So Pastor McCoy, can you give us a brief overview of what that was about? All right, so in Second Chronicles, we are looking at the, the kingdom um, under Solomon. We're looking at how the kingdom was divided. And um, then we go into Ezra, where we're, we're seeing the beginnings of the of our return, our reform, um, as it were, and a rebuilding of God's temple and a reconstitution of God's people um, as God's children, covenant people. So yeah, we're, 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 we're getting back to Israel in a sense of coming faithful to God and where they should be in a relationship with God. Um, this week's reading was Nehemiah 8 to Job 12. Um, so Pastor McCoy again. Can you give us a brief overview of what we will be discussing? Right, so it's a continuation of um, how Nehemiah um, 
steps up as this reformer, um, this nation builder, and um, leads the pe leads people, lead the rebuilding of the wall. You know, we're looking coming into that place, the completion of the building of the wall, and also the dedication, and also the reform that he instituted. The, people recommitting themselves to God. Then we find ourselves in in Esther looking at how God spared the people through the, the witness and the willingness of, of Esther to put herself on the front lines. And then we, we, we begin to come into the place of the wisdom books. Um, we're looking at Job, um, you know, Proverbs, Psalms, and, and all that. So we are, we are, we are, we are, we are moving along steadily to, to the prophets. So the question is asking, should we confess the sins of our ancestors? Does God forgive our ancestors when we confess their sins? In, the, in this context, the ancestors um, are, uh, are referring to most likely people who have passed on, right? People who have died and are off the scene of action. And so when we say we should confess the sins of our ancestors and does God forgive our ancestors' sins when we confess their sins, um, we, we cannot, in a sense, take responsibility for the confession of sins for our ancestors um, because we're going to find that, you know, as we believe they, that life, you know, life and all its activities um, and with death, and we cannot confess the sins in the, in the sense of confessing and asking for forgiveness for them on their behalf because they have already passed on, and uh, we don't believe that you can pray away the sins of the dead, right? Um, but something we have to note of, of importance is when they say, you know, confess, when they are confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors, it's a recognition of the fact that they have not uh, behaved differently from their ancestors, that there is a similarity between the way the ancestors failed God and they in the present are doing the same and are taking responsibility for the fact that, um, that they are, you know, failing God. And thus they are confessing their sins. So I, I don't take it to mean that they are confessing the sins of their ancestors for God to forgive their ancestors' sins, but recognizing that their ancestors made some mistakes. They sinned and they are seeing that in their own living and they want to turn away from that kind of ancestral pattern, you know, or, or pattern that they see in themselves stringing from um, coming from their ancestors so the next question is taken from nehemiah 10 31 and it reads we will not buy a sabbath or on a holy day from the neighboring wares and all fields lie fallow every seventh year and we will cancel every loan so the question is asking this passage does not support trading on the sabbath is this one of the reasons why we do not exchange money on the Sabbath? So, yes, to both questions. Um, well, to one, to the question. Uh, we can take this as a reason why we are not exchanging money on the Sabbath. But 
it goes back to the original reason as to why we observe Sabbath, why we do not exchange money on the Sabbath. Sabbath is, is more um, about delighting in God as, as creator, um, celebrating what God did through the Exodus, and also celebrating what God did at the cross, and also what we look forward to in the future of eternal rest. So those are the reasons we celebrate Sabbath. But yes, we can we can say that this is one of the reasons we do not exchange money on the Sabbath. But in this context, um, Nehemiah um, was, as it were, guiding the people in in how to observe Sabbath truly, right? Because they were, you know, because of what was happening in, the, in at the time, right? Um, they needed resources. And you know these merchants came on, and how it is portrayed is that the merchants are not necessarily Israelites who people who observe the Sabbath, and so Nehemiah has to send those merchants away to not be, as it were, a temptation to the people of God, you know, in breaking the Sabbath and such forth. Um, but he's also encouraging the people of Israel to take responsibility for their commitment. Um, as Sabbath-keeping people, as God's people, to observe the Sabbath um, as a memorial of creation, um, the Exodus, and also of the Exodus. Nehemiah 13, verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. The question is asking, the Levites were working in the fields because tithe was not being returned. Is this a justification for continuing to return tithe today? Why aren't musicians paid from the tithe like they were in the Bible days? Right. Um, so if we notice in this in this account, um, remember Israel is coming out of captivity and they are rebuilding as a nation. And so the way they used to function before, before captivity is, is not the same. And so there had to be some adjustments to make life work. Notice that even Levites served as, as guards. Nehemiah had them served as guards. The time and the circumstance called for Levites to function in necessary ways, right? In necessary ways. And so while the people weren't in the promised land and had the opportunity to, 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 to turn the soil and, and live and, and return tithe because their way of life was this was disrupted by the captivity and nehemiah is trying to bring them back to that place by rebuilding the wall and 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 so forth so much forward right so uh in a sense is this a justification for continuing to return the tithe so that the levite could get paid now i think i answered this question in a in a, in a similar question to this in a prior episode but the way the tithe is administered, the, the way the tithe was administered in the biblical days are not the ways, is not the way it is, is administered today. The requirement, the principle of returning a tenth remains the same, but how it is administered is different, right? Today, our system does not, is not our system of governance for the church is not patterned so much after the biblical pattern of how they function around the sanctuary 
with Levites and priests. It's, it's not the same organization and structure and functioning. But the principle of returning the tithe, a tenth, remains the same. And how, the, how it is administered is not the same. So why aren't musicians paid from the tithe um, like they were in the Bibles, or in the Bible days? One, structure, functioning is different. And individual churches, even in our denomination, the Seventh Adventist churches, church, churches function uniquely according to their circumstance um, on certain matters. And this is a matter that a church board uh, would, would, would normally decide. So this depends on the on the context of whether the church has gifted musicians does not have gifted musicians um, but the administration of the tithe coming back to the administration of the tithe as to whether musicians should get paid on the tithe how the tithe is administered today is not how it was administered then and so now the tithe is administered in a way to advance if you were the proclamation of the gospel specifically um, uh, those are the ways it's, it's, it's used in broadly broadly speaking right but as i said in terms of musicians in local churches and how they are paid or whether they are not they are paid is a matter for a particular church to to um to consider but but notice what it, what, what what nehemiah did in conclusion on this question he he restored the levites to their their appropriate role right um if you look into in verses in verse 11 so i remonstrated with the officials and said why is the house of god forsaken and gather no verse 10 right i also found i also found out the portion of the levites had not been given to them so that the levites and the singers who had conducted the service of god had gone back to the fields so for that reason because the levites had to work he remonstrated with the officials and said why is the house the house of god forsaken and I gathered them and set them in their stations. Right? What does that mean? Then I get then so he he replaced, he restored the Levites to their service in the temples. Then I then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil in the storehouse. Right? So he restored the Levites to their position. So that's something we have, we have to also have to recognize that is happening here as a part of Nehemiah's reform of reconstituting Israel um, as God's people and how it's supposed to function as a covenant community. Cool. Okay, so the fourth question comes from Nehemiah 13, verse 21 and 24, 24 and 25. But I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Furthermore, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. So the question is asking, Nehemiah is cursing the people and using violence. Is this a model for leaders to bring their followers in line? 
Should we force others to obey God's commands? Right. So, um, Nehemiah's strategy uh, was kind of forceful, and you, you'll see that throughout the narrative, the, 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 the book of, of Nehemiah. Um, is it appropriate in all circumstances, um, a strategy of being forceful? Forcefulness might not be necessary, but um, engaging and encouraging, um, strongly encouraging, I want to say, is, is, a, is a better way. But to the question, um, should we force people to obey God's commands? Uh, definitely no. Not even God. Not even God forces us to obey God. Obedience is not forced. It is a matter of choice. Right? Obedience to God's commands is a matter of choice. Um, and something to note, um, how, how in Nehemiah's reform, he is you know, chiding the people for marrying out of the people of God or, or intermarrying with pagans. Um, now, Nehemiah and, and Ruth differ on this point. Notice it was through marrying, if you were a pagan, uh, it was a, a, an intermarriage of, of pagans in a sense, in Ruth that there was some kind of uh, redemption, if you were, because remember, um, Ruth wasn't an Israelite, but Boaz was, right? So I just want to bring that point to, to make, I just wanted to bring that to, to, to say that Nehemiah in his reform, when they are out of a difficult circumstance, can, um, can emphasize this. But notice when Israel was in a difficult, difficult place, um, you know, the, the, the famine and all of that and stuff in, in terms of the book of Ruth, which we went through, um, we saw how that became a way for God's people to survive and even for King David to come and for Jesse to come on the scene and for King David to come on the scene as we spoke about there. But something, something of importance, Nehemiah's efforts here are to preserve cultural and the, the cultural and religious heritage, right? Because his challenge was that the, the people are not, that the children are not speaking the, the language of Judah, that that's a cultural heritage there, right? And, and, and the religious heritage there you know, um, speaking about also the intermarrying with pagans and stuff. So his, his, his aim in this part of his reform is to preserve the Jewish cultural and religious identity as a people of God. Right. So you're saying it was more so like a part of his, like a part of the set of people, their identity. And that's why he was so forceful in it. And not necessarily because more like today, it's more so choice and God wants you to choose. Got you. I can see that. The next question is taken from Esther chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval. 
more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So the question is asking, the king was pleased with Esther and made her queen. Did she have to be intimate with him before they were officially married? If she wasn't chosen, would she have been considered immoral for having violated her purity with someone who was not her husband? That's a good question. Right, um, good question. Here's how we're gonna to start to answer this one. So when we look in the, 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 the chap, in Esther chapter two, one of the things we see is some historical details about the, 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 the narrator gives us a, an eye, an, a, a vision or, or a recollection of how things process, of how these women were, were, were prepared to go in the king's presence and what happened and how the king related to them. Um, now, based on chapter, verses 12 to 14, which I'm going to read again, which you read, there is a suggestion um, that intimacy is is a part of the process right there's a suggestion let me let me read it verse 13 when, it, when the girl went into the king he was she was given whatever she asked for to take with her from the from the harem to the king's house 14 in the evening she went in and then in the morning she came back um to the second harem in the custody of the king's eunuch there is a suggestion of intimacy as a part of the process um, of the king choosing his wife. But look at what verse 15 says. Verse 15 says, when the turn came for Esther, right? Who had, uh, yeah, I spoke about Mordecai. Listen to what, what it says. She asked for nothing except what Hagar, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised her. So the, the, the suggestion again is that she used wisdom. A part of her process is in becoming and being chosen to be the queen is she used wisdom. She took advice from the eunuch. We are not, we are not you know, privy to what that advice is, but the suggestion based on the narrative is that a part of why she was chosen is she applied wisdom in her dealings with the king. Right? And she didn't ask for anything except what she was advised to do. So that, that comes across as she using wisdom in the process of, of being chosen. But not only that, verse 17 and still in verse 15 speaks about her, her beauty and how that gave her favor in the king's sight. So the, 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 where I'm going to is this, though there's a suggestion that intimacy is a part of the process has been chosen there's also a suggestion that uh esther used wisdom and her beauty to gain favor with the king which in the narrative line is seeming to suggest that she didn't have intimacy with the king now these are all narrative things that are happening um there's no nothing specific in it but they, these are suggestive one that intimacy is a part of the process for all the girls but when it comes to esther especially there's a sense that she used wisdom and her beauty to gain favor with the king and thus she was chosen that's the best i can say whether there was intimacy or not 
it is a suggestion, but it's not uh, specifically stated as such. Um, so to the second part of the question, if he wasn't chosen, would she have been considered immoral or having violated her purity with someone who was not her husband? Yes, it would have been considered um, uh, immoral because obviously she wasn't married to the king. Um, and in, even if, in the sense that she, she was chosen by the king, if she had intimacy with the king before she got married, it would still have been some sense of immorality. There will be, be immorality in, 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 that, in that too. Um, so yes, no, no doubt about that. But, but how dealing with Esther was, as to whether or not she was intimate or not with the king, it's a suggestion, but is evident is that her wisdom and beauty brought her favor with the king. That is evident from the passage. Makes sense. Okay, so the next question is also from Esther. Um, Esther chapter three. Um, it's about Haman's plot against the Jews. Um, the question asks, was Haman's hatred for the Jews limited to his hatred limited to his hatred of Mordecai, or was it based on his descendants having a rift with Israel? I think it's based on the fact that he is a Jew. Uh, I'm not sure of there being a rift between Israel and and um Haman's descendants, but it's evident that there is some, you know, in our, in our time we call it um, anti-Semitism, right? There's a sense of that because Mordecai um, tells um, Esther to conceal the fact that she is Jewish. Now, we aren't given much details as to why that is, um, but we can read in a larger story in that Israel... The Israelites were the, if you were the, the hated underdogs, right? And if her, if her identity as a Jew was revealed, it would have somehow disqualified her or prevented the process from going forward. Um, so the wisdom of, of Mordecai um, telling her not to reveal her identity as a Jewish person suggests that there is some anti-Semitism happening. Um, whether it's because of the hatred of Jews in total or descendants rift, um, it's not specifically stated, but there is, there is hatred definitely um, toward the Jewish people. Next question is from Esther chapter three um, as well, verse seven. And it says, so in the month of April during the 12th year of, the king, of king Xerxes reign, Lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim, which determined the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a, a year later. So the question, the person is basically asking if you could, if you could please explain what this verse means. All right. So prior to, um, in the previous verses, we, we are seeing the plot, right? We are seeing the plot being devised to destroy Mordecai and, and the Israelite people. In this specific verse, we are, we are seeing them considering the date for that to, you know, to begin enacting that, right? So they're looking at the calendar and they're casting a lot to determine which day should it specifically be. Now, notice that the date that was chosen, right? Even in the, their casting of lots, the, their plans 
turned out to be God's plan. And we're going to see what I mean by that. It gave Esther time to be crowned queen and also to save the Jewish people. Now, if they had, so the, the time in which they planned, it was a year's time, right? If they had planned for a, a shorter period of time, possibly uh, Esther could have been crowned, you know, because remember the process for the women to go in to the king took approximately a year in being perfumed and being oiled. It took them about one year from being brought into the eunuch to being carried into the king's presence. And at the same time, the narrative showing that they, they, they are planning to destroy the Israelite people when God was already bringing Esther into the picture at the same time. So their plan actually turned out to, to be a part of God's plan, if you please. Work in the, in, in the will, in, in the sphere of God's um, um, ultimate and divine plan. The next question, it comes from Esther chapter 4, and it's regarding Mordecai persuading Esther to help him. Um, the question is asking, since Malachi had to challenge Esther to do what was right, was she really the hero of the story? So I think, I, I, I'm not sure if she's ref if the person was referring to Malachi or Mordecai in this, in this I sense. I think it's Mordecai. Yeah. Mordecai. yeah. Um, so I'm trying to find a, a wonderful example for this. Um, in life, we are always going to have persons with more wisdom, more experience, that can give us guidance and that's what we see happening in this right malik uh, mordecai is portrayed as this israelite of, of of wisdom and experience um guiding his his you know his relative um that doesn't diminish esther's role in the narrative and so if we're going to talk about a hero a heroine of the story um yes she has that role um, because she you know her name, Esther, means, you know, to, to hide. Esther means to hide. But notice what happens in the story. She takes the encouragement. She didn't have to take the encouragement, right? Or she didn't have to stand up, stand up to the challenge of Mordecai. But her name means Esther, you know, being to hide. She comes forward out of hiding and stands in the gap for her people. And so she does have a prominent role in the story being the heroine of the story um which is not diminished by the encouragement the guidance given to her by mordecai and if you please mordecai is the hero of the story and esther is the heroine of the story esther chapter 6 verse 13 when haman told his wife zeresh that all his friends and all his friend what had happened his wise advisors and his wife said since mordecai the man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth. You will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. And the question is asking, can people succeed at persecuting Christians? Um, the history of Christianity uh, suggests that Christians have indeed been persecuted. Um, but what is, is significant, I, I notice Jesus said, in the Beatitudes, he spoke about the, those being persecuted, right? And that they will be blessed. Um, blessed are they when they persecute you for all manner of evil. And, 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 and I don't remember the specific, the verse verb, 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 verbatim. But the idea is 
being a Christian doesn't mean the text didn't say Jesus didn't say blessed are those who escape persecution, right? Um, and not to say that those who are who escaped are not blessed, but the idea is God vindicates those who are persecuted, and that's where they become. That's how they become blessed. Referring to the the the, the um the beatitude of Jesus, right? So the history of Christianity details how Christians have been persecuted, um, you know, become food for, for, for lions and candles to light the dark night. Um, it's there. The history tells a story. But something that the story of Mordecai tells us is that God vindicates those who are persecuted unjustly. That's the message um, of Mordecai, uh, relating to Mordecai in the story. Okay, we're going to jump to Job, uh, the book of Job. So the first question from Job comes from chapter 1, verse 6. Um, this is the New Living Translation. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. The question is asking, why did God single out Job to Satan like that? It feels like God was playing games with Job's life. How else, how else could we see this? One, God singled out Job because of his qualities as described. Right? He is blameless and a man of complete integrity. Now, if you're really going to test somebody, um, oh, let me say this first. Now, the big theme around the book of Job, the book of this wisdom book is why, why bad things happen to good people, right? And so for that theme to come forward, um, and another thing that it's, it's talking about is whether or not virtue operates on the, on the principle of reward and punishment, right? Um, going back kind of to, to Deuteronomy um, and the blessings and the curses. If you're good, you are blessed. If you, are, if you sin, you, you, you get punishment. So there's a, there's a play and, and, and um, an allusion to that, to that there, right? But why did God single out Job? One, his qualities. If you are going to test any principle or quality, you need um, the best product sample, right? And Job stands out as the best product sample for God about faithfulness to God in the midst of difficulties or faithfulness to God, um, responding to the question of why bad things happen to good people, right? Job stands out as this ultimate example of blamelessness and integrity and the accuser Satan is going to put God's fear to the test, as it were, and put his fear to the test as to whether or not virtue depends on the principle of reward or punishment. You're blessed because you know you do good, you're blessed, or you're 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 you're, um, you're good because you're blessed, and um, punishment and reward. Yeah. Yeah, because I know growing up, like, Job was a really hard story for me. Like, I just, I couldn't get past it. Because it's like, 
it just seemed it just seemed to me like God was trying to prove a point. Like, what about Job's life? Like, what about him and his family? Like, it's like you wanted to prove a, a point at the expense of like one of your children. Like, and yeah. it just never rubbed me the right way. <laughs> it just never yeah. rubbed me the yeah. right it's way. It's yeah, you were right to you were right to name that. It's a, it's a tough one. Um, and, and 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 here's why Job is so significant. The the the, the character of Job is so significant. If a blameless person of complete integrity can experience all these horrors, what kind of God is this, right? Who is this God? And does it make sense if you live blamelessly and complete with complete integrity, if even when you're good, you still experience evil? So those are some of the things that are, that are happening in the story. And we're going to see how, how God responds to that. We see how God responds to that in giving Job double, you know, of what was taken away from him, you know, jumping ahead of the story. Okay. Um, another question from Job chapter two, verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The question is asking, this verse mentions other sons of God coming to re represent their various worlds. Does this mean there are other living creatures on other planets? From the spirit of prophecy, um, there, there is an assertion that there are other worlds. Um, there is an assertion that there are other worlds, other planets, other beings. And even from this text itself would suggest that, that uh, these sons of, of God um, are representatives of gods to the various planets. And this, the, the Satan comes in to play an accusatory role um, in testing the relationship between the peoples of these planets and and the god this this the god so it, it seems as the, the way it's portrayed as if this convened this this council you know this there's, a, there's this council that that representatives comes from each each planet and this council is convened to examine uh, how the relationship of these people in relation to the god of the universe um next question job chapter 2 verse 6 and 7 <coughs> All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. The question is asking, how powerful is Satan? Why did God allow Satan to attack Job, who was blameless? How powerful is Satan? Um, Satan, the story is, it's obvious from the story that Satan has enough power that God allows. Satan has the latitude that is granted this, you know, to function in the, in the, in the sphere of, of, of la the latitude of power that God gives. So what Satan is allowed, is, is able to do is what God allows to happen. It goes back to the fact that God is the sovereign being of this universe, right? Um, who has control over all things. And I said this, um, I think, in another episode when we were in Deuteronomy, how, how 
evil evil comes about as the cause by by cause by reason of disobedience in this satan is merely functioning as an accuser um, and testing the limits or the strength of job's relationship with god did i answer the question fully is there a part of that that i left out? yes no okay. you answered the question i was sure, just like had a, like other <laughs> i just had like another comment because like i know we always like talk about in church that god is this all-powerful all-controlling omnibenevolent omnipresent being this deity that right. exists outside right. of us and etc etc and so like there's so many like philosophical arguments that talk about the fight between God and, you know, Satan or the antagonist. And it's like, I can see like certain arguments in terms of like, if God is all powerful, all controlling, he created everything, right? Then some people say like, he, then that means that he created evil. And if he didn't create evil, and evil came in and obstructed his whole perfect plan, then that means that he's not a perfect God and he is not all controlling. And that, mm. so there's like so many arguments that go into that whole philosophical thing. And it's so like, it's mind boggling to like, think about those things, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so. so. so uh, um, Job, uh, Satan's attacks at Job, functioned as a temptation to sin and by sin i mean for job to lose faithfulness um and to, to lose his blamelessness and integrity with god right as an individual because remember he was blameless so this idea of boils and stuff come upon him it's like okay if god's doing to this doing this to me after based on who i am then i should we're going to come to that in another in another way right then I should just, you know, why am I keeping faith with this God? Why am I remaining faithful to this God? But Job holds on, right? And overcome what would seem like a temptation um, to sin with these boils and, and, his, and over his body, right? But it's, it's a test of Job's uh, relationship with God. It is very true. Okay, next question. It comes from Job chapter 3, verse 3. Let the day of my birth be erased and the night I was conceived. So the question is asking, here, Job wants to erase the day of his birth. Is he seeking to literally change the calendar? No, uh, he's not seeking to change the calendar. He is reflecting on, it's as if, it, as if, it's as if, it, as if, it's as if he is saying, I wish I did not exist. Based on all that I'm going through, I wish I did not exist because it's so much. So it's not necessarily literally about the day. Well, it's about the day he was born, he was conceived, um, but it's more about his existence. You know, he was going through an existential crisis and he was like, if I didn't exist, this wouldn't be happen happening to me. And so right. well, I wish right. I did not exist. So that's kind of where Job is, is, is placing his thinking. Job 5, verse 17. But consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. The question is, just like Eliphaz, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, people may assume that we have sinned and are being disciplined by God when we are going through trials. 
what should we tell them and do in these circumstances? Uh, two things. One, if they are assuming, if they are functioning like Eliphaz, Eliphaz Faz, if they are functioning like him, then they are wrong too, because he 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 he, you know, turned out to be be, be kind of wrong. People assume that we have sinned and have been disciplined when God when we are going through trials. Job ne didn't necessarily was committing did anything wrong because he was blameless, complete integrity. So the the assumption that we are going through something because we sinned. If someone assumes that, then they are in the same place as as Eliphaz, where they are, they are thinking is wrong. And what should we do? We should do like Job, or at least in certain places like Job, we should remain faithful to God. Trials come and go, but our faithfulness to God should be constant and consistent. And so that's what we should do. We don't have to get into a war of words, um, whether or not as to we we are we are sinners or if we it's because we're, we're sinful or whatever we're we're experiencing this. Our duty in that moment is to remain faithful to God, regardless of what we are going through. Right. And I think that's the overall theme of the story of Job too. Like no matter what, just staying faithful. I mean, it's a kind of a hard, hard read, but <laughs> I think that's the theme. Um, right. Job right. 6 verse 29 is, stop assuming my guilt for I have done no wrong question is asking. Job insisted that he was innocent and didn't do anything wrong, but aren't we all sinners? Job was accused of being guilty for sins which he did not commit. Now, while, while, while those accus accusations are wrong, it doesn't mean that Job was flawless or, well, it did say that he was blameless and, and complete, you know, in his integrity, right? But in terms of us or being sinners, no one is faultless or flawless. Um, by the, the, the word of God says, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And being descendants of, of, of our four parents, Adam and Eve, all of us um, partake of that sinfulness and that's why we all need Jesus. And so yes, in Job, you know, the sins he was accused of, he wasn't, he was innocent of those things, but that doesn't mean that, you know, he was or any of us are sinless in, in totality or in who we are as human beings. Job chapter 2, verse 9, it says, His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. The question is asking, Job's friends gave him hope while his wife told him to curse God. Can a friend be more support supportive than a spouse? How can we find a healthy balance between our friendships and marriage? Is one more important than the other? All right. So uh, let me zoom in specifically on, on, on verse in chapter 2, 9. You know, Job, and we're going to relate it to his friends and stuff. Notice that, that um, Job's wife echoed God's evaluation of Job. God's, Job. God said Job is blameless and a person of complete integrity. In, in this instance, she's doing that. Are you still going to maintain your integrity? She's saying that he's a man of integrity. So that is to be noted, right? So while it might seem like his friends were giving him hope and his wife wasn't giving him hope, we have to notice that she was affirming his character as being one of integrity. 
So that's something we have to uh, pay attention to. Uh, two, her thought of him giving up his integrity and cursing God and die comes from a sense of frustration of the fact that Job is a man of integrity, but yet still he is experiencing this misery, right? So her, her, her question then is, her thought then is there, there is no connection between being virtuous and being rewarded, right? Because if you are virtuous and still experiencing misery, what's the sense of remaining virtuous? What's the sense of remaining, of returning your integrity? If you're gonna, if you're gonna have integrity and suffer, it's best to die. It's best to die and and and, and so because there's no positive connection. It doesn't. It does make sense. She's actually saying, "I'm I'm I'm good, but I'm I'm experiencing misery." Well, give up your. If you give up your integrity, it can't be worse. It's either you die. That's it. That's kind of her thought, right? But going into the question, right? Uh, did she? not giving me any hope or anything like that uh it, was she doing better or work was she doing worse than his his friends were i don't necessarily think so um and a question can a friend be more supportive than a spouse here's how i want to respond to that yes a friend can be more supportive than a spouse um it's possible uh there's potential for that to be the case but here's how i want to balance that um, here's how I want to put a caveat on that. The caveat comes in and how we balance the relationship and, and between friendship and whether one is important or the other. So here's what I want to say about this. A friendship is important to the extent that it supports your marriage, right? A friendship is important or significant or beneficial to the extent that it supports your marriage. Here's what I mean. Is your friend a friend of your relationship? This is how, this is the kind of question I would use to evaluate this question of the importance of friendship and the balance between friendship and marriage, right? Is your friend, is your friend a friend of your marriage? Is your friend wanting the best for the marriage that you have with your particular spouse? In that case, if, the, if it is yes, your friend wants you and your, your relationship to flourish and to, to grow, then yes, that relationship, that friendship is significant, um, but it is still not more important than, the, than your, in your marriage. Your marriage supersedes any friendship. A matter of fact, marriage is the most important friendship. Or you can say it away, friendship in marriage is the most significant friendship, right? Um, so that's how I would respond to that there. Right. So in, in, in Job's wife's case, it's not as if she was all being all doom and gloom. She was really thinking through something. She was thinking through the theme of the book of Job. Right. If you are virtuous, if you are a man of integrity, but you are still suffering, why remain alive and suffering and, and suffer for being good? You're a good person. Why is bad happening to you? Right. Give up this goodness thing and and die because it doesn't make a, a, a difference that's kind of her reasoning and her reasoning is is worthwhile it's it's meaningful reasoning because it, it follows kind of the theme of the book the exploration the wisdom that we are we are gleaning from the book right so her thought is there's no positive connection between the virtue of integrity and reward you know give up so she's not 
taking away all hope from Job. She is giving him a way out of the misery that he is experiencing. That's her thought process that she was going through. As she observes his loss and his pity and his shame and the pain that he's going through, it was a loving, it can be seeing or read as a loving response to a person who is suffering, right? Because if someone is suffering, we don't go to them and say, um, continue to suffer. Um, continue in your suffering or, or suffering is God's will for you or something like that. She was really being thinking compassionately about the situation her husband was going through. That's how at least I want to think about it. Well, um, thank you, Pastor McCoy, for joining us tonight. Um, viewers, those of you who are watching, I invite you guys next week to read through Job 13 um, to 42, and you can text your questions to the same number, and that number is 954-388-8780. So I encourage you guys to read daily and not all at once so you can really um, absorb all of the material because I know it's a lot um, to learn all at once. Um, next week's presenters are going to be Pastor Paul and Lindy, Lenny Anderson, excuse me. So, Pastor McCoy, can you tell our viewers um, what they should be expecting in Job 13 to Job 42 next week? Can you give them a little idea? Well, so we are going to explore the, the in, in, in details and in a serious way, whether or not Job is actually sinless or blameless or faultless or flawless. And the question is going to be answered, uh, why bad things happen to good people? And we're going to see God's justice. We're going to see God's character and quality come forward in how God blesses Job because of how Job went through the experience of suffering. We're going to, we're going to see some of that happening there. Okay. So, um, viewers, again, thank you so much for tuning in with us. Thank you, Pastor McCoy, for joining us and answering a lot of these very interesting, um, hard questions. Um, remember, um, viewers, that you can always um, get notified of anything that is going on in the events and this series, um, any upcoming news about this series, um, if you subscribe to Plantation SDA's YouTube channel. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to ask Pastor McCoy. Let us pray. God of wisdom, sovereign God, we know that your will is beyond our, our comprehension. No one, we cannot advise you. Um, we weren't there when you created the world, when you threw the stars into being. Um, and so we do not have full view of your workings. And because of our limited understanding, sometimes we think that, God, you're not functioning in the way you should. But as we continue through this book of Job and onwards through this study, we realize that all we need to do is to remain faithful to you because your will and providence supersedes all that happens in our lives and in this world. So give us the, the willingness, give us the all that it takes to submit and to be faithful to you, 
regardless of all that we go through. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible and Lost. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30 p.m. for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible and Lost.